Well, good morning. If we haven't met yet, my name's Hans. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here. It is great to see you guys here. Make sure you keep your Bibles open to Exodus chapter 13. Um, just one thing, uh, it's a very, I think, an encouraging thing. We've got two members of our church, Rich Cho and Haron on away because they're preaching at other churches. I just think it's amazing that God has given us people uh, with those preaching gifts that can serve other churches. And uh, as a church, we can strengthen other churches. So I'm going to thank God for that also. And I'm going to pray for them as they preach and us as we hear God's word together. Let's pray. Uh, Father God, thank you that you are building up uh, your church here at Marsfield Community Church. We thank you for the people who have come over the last few years. We also thank you that you have equipped us as a church so we can bless other churches. We pray for our brothers Hauran and Rich. We pray that you be uh, helping them to preach with clarity, with faithfulness. May your spirit work through uh, your word at the churches they're preaching at to help people see you more clearly. And Lord, we pray that for us here today too. Lord, we we just don't want to uh, sit through another talk. We want to encounter you and your word. And so, Lord, I pray that you would do that. May everyone who is here in this room or watching online, may we encounter you in your word and may we walk away from here having heard something from you that will help us to live for you. And Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm not sure if you can remember the first time you went to Sizzler, but I do. It was like, I don't know, a bogan pilgrimage or something. When I, where I grew up in Moray, they didn't have Sizzler. And everyone talked about, you've got to go to Sizzler, you've got to go to Sizzler, you've got to go to Sizzler. And so the first time I went, it was kind of a religious experience, I've got to say, you know. It was pretty amazing because one of the things I loved about Sizzler is that you could put whatever you wanted on your plate and you could, and mum had no jurisdiction over my plate, right? She couldn't say, oh, you need to eat greens. No, it's my plate. Where it's Sizzler, it's really good. My parents did have to say, hands, it is all you can eat, not all you can fit on the plate. Though I had to get that, right? But, but the great thing about Sizzler is you can kind of put what you wanted on your plate. If you like pasta, you can load, load yourself up if you can do this. And the dessert bar, wasn't that amazing, right? You can make a dessert of your own creation. I think we live in a world where people approach God a lot like Sizzler, right? We put on our theological plate or our religious plate the different things about God that we actually like. And we leave the things off the religious plate, the things that we don't like. So, so it, maybe you're figuring out where you're at with Jesus. You don't call yourself Christian. I dare say you've got a conception of God of the things that you like, right? And so many Aussies do this. Well, I like that God is really loving. So that, I'm going to put a big portion of that on my plate. And I, I like this about God. So I'm going to put in this. I don't like that God is against this or doesn't like this. So I'm not going to put that on my plate. This is my conception of God. And I actually think, um, to a lesser extent, Christians do that. We think about God in ways that are really palatable to us or really kind of uh, encouraging to us. So we go, well, I believe that God is uh, our Heavenly Father who loves us, which is true. The Bible says that and we put that in our conception of God. And we put an idea that God is giving me a hope and a future. Well, I'm going to put that in my conception of God. But I wonder if you've put 
this conception of God in your view of God, that he is a warrior, that he's a warrior. When was the last time you prayed to the warrior God? See, our passage today actually says that God is a warrior. Uh, Exodus 15 verse 3 says this, The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. In this passage, make no mistake, God portrays himself in his word as a warrior. And if you read the New Testament, especially the book of Revelation, Jesus is seen as a warrior also. Our God is a warrior. And I dare say that for some of us, we go, man, that's too big, that's too violent, that's too scary, that's too confronting. And it is, it is scary, it is confronting. But as we're going to see, it's actually confronting in a good way. It's actually good for us that our God is a warrior. And so as we look at this passage, which clearly says that God is a warrior and portrays him as such, what we're going to see is that it is actually a really good thing for us, that our God is not just this namby-pamby little God, but he is a warrior. As we look at this passage, we're going to see three things. We're going to see a faith to want, a power to fear, and a victory to celebrate. A faith to want, a power to fear, and a victory to celebrate. The first person I want us to look at is Moses, especially as we kind of see what he says in response to what the Israelites say. Have a look at verse 10 of chapter 13. Sorry, verse 10 of chapter 14. I I wrote it wrong on my thing. Verse 10. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us out into the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out, out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, Leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. They see Pharaoh's 600 chariots. They probably saw the, the, the dust from the, from, the, from the desert as they approach and they are terrified. They hear the hooves of the horses And they start complaining. Kind of rightly so. They're scared, right? But I I love what they say. Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? I've read the book of Exodus closely. I don't remember them saying that. In fact, they they didn't say that. They've just made this up. They are so scared. They're going, why did you do this? We were living in Egypt. Now we're going to die in the desert. They're scared. And notice what Moses says. Moses answers the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. Notice what he says. 
He says, yes, there are Egyptians coming, but remember God. God is going to fight for you, so be still. It's not just um, be still, like chill out, right? He's saying, don't get your knickers in a knot, basically. That's not what the Hebrew literally says, but it's the vibe, right? He's saying, don't worry, don't panic. God is going to fight for you. You only got to trust. You have to trust in him. The Lord will fight for you. And notice, he says, these Egyptians, you're never going to see them again. The implication is, they will be wiped from the face of the earth. But then have a look what God says to Moses. Verse 15. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so they will go in after them and I will gain my glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Did you notice God's got this? All you have to do is is put out a staff, I've got this. I'm going to gain glory because I'm going to fight for you. But did you notice how he says, why are you crying out to me? He says that to Moses, why are you crying out to me? And once again, in the original, it's why are you complaining to me? Why are you doing this, Moses? And if I was Moses, I would go, um, I didn't. I mean, hey, God, I'm not sure if you got the conversation. Let me, let me, let me go back. Um, the Israelites, you know, your people, they saw Pharaoh. They complained. They wanted to go back to Egypt. I said, hey, we should trust in God. He's going to fight for us. That was, that was me. So I actually didn't say this. I didn't complain to you. I had faith in you. So why is God kind of giving it to Moses here? Here's why. In, in chapter 6, in Exodus chapter 6, uh, there's a, a kind of like a family tree of Moses. And in that, the whole point of that family tree is to show that Moses was a Levite, a certain type of priest, that he was, and Levites were people who were, who were mediators between God and man. They represented God to God's people, and they represented uh, the people to God. And, and so here is Moses... He is, God, he is the Israelite representative to God. And so the, the Israelites are complaining and God says, hey, why have, why have you been complaining? He's a mediator between God and man. It's a bit like a diplomat. I would hate to be a diplomat. I would love to be in a foreign country, well, most foreign countries, but, but here's why I wouldn't like to be a diplomat. If I disagreed with what the Australian government was saying or doing, I would still have to go over there, wherever I'm at, and represent that government, even if I disagreed with them. And if the country I was a diplomat to really was angry with the Australian government, guess who hears it? Me as the diplomat. Because I represent... I represent Australia to another country. Here is Moses representing God's people to God. He is the mediator. And so keep that in the back of your mind. 
because we're going to come back to that. Have you ever thought, why is there a difference between the Israelites' response to the Egyptians coming and Moses' response? Have a look again with me at what the Israelites say from verse 11. And notice how many times they say Egypt or Egyptian and how many times they say God. Verse 11. They said to Moses, was it because there was no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have, you done, what have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, let us alone, let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. How many times did they talk about Egypt or the Egyptians? Five times. How many times did they talk about God? Not once. Have a look at Moses. What does Moses say? Do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance of the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today will never see you will never see again. For the Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. Who who is first and foremost on the Israelites' mind? It is the Egyptians. Who is first and foremost on Moses' mind? It is God. And that makes all the difference, doesn't it? They are both in the same situation. Their lives are on the line. And the Israelites can only see the Egyptians where Moses looks up and can only see the warrior God that he serves. And I don't know about you, but when I am in a situation where I have got problems or pain or my life seems like it's blowing up, it is so easy just to focus on the issue at hand, isn't it? It is so easy to forget about God and just focus on my pain or my problems or the issue or whatever it is and to totally forget about God. But Moses does the opposite. He sees the army coming and he knows that God is there. His problem here is so much bigger than ours a lot Unless one of you guys have been chased by an Egyptian army recently. No, our problems seem really big, but they pale in comparison to Moses here. And here is Moses. He has got a great, huge view of God. A huge view that says, compared to the, the Egyptians who are coming, God is so much bigger and so much more powerful. When you have a look at your problems, what are you focusing on? The issues in front of you and your problems or the power of God? Or when you think of God in in the midst of your issues, uh, do you have a big view of God? Do you have a view of God that says, hey, God has got this. God is so powerful. He's got this all under control. I think a lot, of, a lot of the problems in our lives get magnified because we don't view God as big as he is, as powerful as he is. We don't view him as a warrior who can conquer all the problems in our lives. So therefore, the problems in our lives get so much bigger than they really are because we don't have a big enough view of God. How big is your view of God? I, in my life, I've seen when, when, the view, when my view of God gets really, really big, 
my problems get a lot smaller and my anxiety gets a lot smaller. Now, that's, that's pretty easy to say, but what about the times when, when um, my view of my problems is far bigger than my view of God and I'm really worried about my problems? What about that? Am I meant to say, oh, I'm a pathetic, pathetic Christian because I'm not like Moses here? No, you're going to remember what Moses was. Remember, as I said, he is a mediator between God and man. He took the punishment on one level for the anxiety and the unbelief of the Israelites. And we've got a better mediator than Moses, that when we don't measure up, it is Jesus who takes our punishment. And so, yes, we can strive to be like Moses here, who has a big view of God and trusts him. But when we fail that, we've got an even better mediator than Moses, the Lord Jesus, who takes the punishment for our sin. Isn't our God a great God? He's an amazing God. Here we see a faith to want, but our second point, we're going to see a a power to fear. Uh, so many of you guys have been reading through the book of Exodus. It's been great to hear what you guys have been getting out of it. Let me give you a little bit of a recap. In the book of Exodus so far, Pharaoh is totally opposed to God. In chapter 5, verse 2, he says to Moses, Who is the Lord that I should obey him? I don't even know him. And there are a bunch of plagues culminating, as we saw last week, the plague of the firstborn. And at this point, at this point, you would think... Pharaoh would go, okay, had enough, I've lost, it's fine. No, but he's a male, and males hate to lose, and they'll keep going a lot of the time, right? This is what we, got, what we do. But there's something more than that. Have a look at verse 5 of chapter 14. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, What have we done? We have let the Israelites go and lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots along with all the other chariots of Egypt with the officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped near the sea, near Pihiroth, opposite Baal-Zephon. Here they are, they're going out. He has a moment of clarity, he's chasing them out. And then what happens? Have a look at verse 19 with me. Then the angel of God, who had been travelling in front of Israelites' army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to one side and light to the other, so neither went near the other all night long. The Egyptians are shrouded in darkness, which should make them think about that plague of darkness that they went through. But they don't. Then, verse 21, Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The the waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. And this is the stupid thing. I, I don't know if you've ever been to the beach, or ever been to a sea and you've just seen dry ground, like imagine you went to Bondi Beach for a second and there was dry ground 
in the middle of the sea and there was a wall of water on either side. What are you going to do? You're going to go, that's interesting, but I'm staying away from that because that's scary, right? No, the Egyptians have got a different thing. Have a look, verse 23. The Egyptians pursued them and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. You think about a chariot. It's not like they're, they're like a four-wheel drive thing where if they get bogged, they've got enough. No, no, chariots cannot go on wet ground. And yet all Pharaoh can see is the Israelites. He's still in this war with God. And what happens? During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and clouded the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He jammed the wheels of the chariots so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians, their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and at daybreak the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it. And the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and the horsemen. The entire army of Pharaoh that had not followed the Israelites into the sea, not one of them survived. Every one of them died. And you've got to see that there's an insanity here to Pharaoh. Like, you'd think all the plagues... And then losing his firstborn, not to mention the firstborn of so many in Egypt, he would just go, okay, I've lost. You would think that the darkness overnight would go, oh man, maybe I should rethink this. But he doesn't. You'd think that the walls of water, he'd go, well, I've never seen that before. I'm not going to, no, I think, no. But he doesn't. He is raging at war with God and he's blind to reality this is insanity don't you think see if there is a God who made the universe if there is a God who is all powerful and all knowing to to set yourself up as your own mini king against him is to go against how the universe is created it's It's a version of insanity. And some of you guys here may be doing that. You're saying, I'm my own king. Can I just say, just learn from Pharaoh of how insane that is. Learn from Pharaoh how it ends up for you. It doesn't end good. This is utter insanity. It's a bit like uh, I remember a number of years ago, I went to the beach with some friends. And I saw two boys, the, you know, the, the waves weren't big, they were probably about this big. But there were two boys, probably around eight, ten years old, and uh, they had a football and uh, you know, they were playing football in the thing. One would pass, pass the football to the other and he would, he would grab it and he would run and kind of shoulder charge the, the wave coming in, they would get knocked back and they would both laugh and then they'd wait for the next wave to come in and, uh, the, you know, they would throw again and they go, oh, Meninga, or what? they wouldn't say Meninga because he was 20 years ago, but, you know, and they would shoulder charge the thing and they just had a lot of fun and you go, oh, man, that's kind of fun and kind of cute. But imagine 
if those boys, there was a, all the water just went out and there was a tsunami and they dropped the ball and you saw a guy go, oh man, I've seen this. He grabs the ball and runs out to the tsunami and tries to shoulder, charge the tsunami. You would think that's insanity, wouldn't you? But that's exactly what Pharaoh is doing. He's running out to a tsunami of God's power and wrath. And he's trying to shoulder charge it. And you're just going, this is bizarre. This is absolutely insanity. And one of the things that we've got to realize is this. We live in a people, a world of people who are heading first, head first, into a tsunami of God's power and wrath. It is not that they are just, oh, they're nice people, but they've chosen something different. It's not that they have gone, oh, well, it doesn't really matter. You know, it's kind of, no. They're heading first, head first, into a tsunami of God's wrath. Let's go back to that beach with those two boys again. Imagine if someone grabbed, uh, there was a tsunami coming and they grabbed that football and they were running out to it. What would you be doing? Surely you and I would be going, hey, there's a tsunami. You are going to die. Stop. This is ridiculous. It's insane. Don't do it. Wouldn't we? Um, of course we would. But do you realize that the people in your life that you love who don't know Jesus are doing the same thing? And yet, when I look at my life, I just, sometimes I don't want to talk about Jesus because it'll be awkward. And yet they are running head first into a tsunami of God's wrath and his power. Can you see why we bang on all the time about seeing a flood of people become Christians? Can you see why we put hours and hours into the evangelistic things that we do? Can you see why we're going to run um, next term? We're going to run, um, I was going to call it Introducing Jesus. What's it called? Sorry. A fresh look. Thank you. Introducing Jesus was the, was the course I came up with and Tim came up with a better course, right? That's why we bang on about it. We always say, hey, bring your friends. You know, why are we doing the 311, right? It's because people are trying to shoulder charge the tsunami of God's power and wrath. And we want to say, actually, Jesus is there. He died. He took the tsunami of God's power and wrath. So you don't have to. That's why if you come to the membership course, we talk about there's two different kinds of, uh, of churches. We use this analogy. There's the church, which is like a, uh, a cruise ship. On a cruise ship, you just hang out. It's all about you and being comfortable. We say we're not that kind of church. It's not about you being comfortable. We say it's, it's, it's like a life raft and we will do anything that we can to make as many people as they can be on that life raft because we don't want them to shoulder charge a tsunami of God's wrath and power. So think about this. Who are you praying for? Who, who are you sharing the gospel with? As I was preparing this sermon, I, I was thinking... I mean, they're, they're, one of the three that I've been praying for, the 311, they've come to church already, praise God, but there's another two, so I've got to do work on that. I've got to work out a time that I'm going to hang out with one of them, and we're not just going to talk about the footy or whatever, we're going to talk 
hopefully about Jesus, even if it's awkward. And what I've got to do, I've got to invite them to the next fresh look because I don't want him to actually shoulder charge the wrath of God. It just makes no sense. And this week when we have our staff meeting, what I'm going to do is I'm going to say to each member of the staff team, guess what? We're going to, each one of us are going to invite someone to the next fresh look because that's what we're on about. We want to see people come to know Jesus. And then when the leadership team gets together, I'm going to say, hey, every one of us is going to invite someone to the fresh look. Even if they don't come, we're going, we're going to work hard and invite them. We're going to pray and we're going to work towards that. Because we want, we want to see a flood of people become Christian, not shoulder charge a tsunami of God's wrath. Is that what you want? Because that's what we want. There is a, a power here to fear. And finally, there's a victory to celebrate. A victory to celebrate. Now, I won't go through all, all, all the, the, the bits in chapter 15, but here is a song, and a song, what is it about? Verse 1, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted, both horse and driver he has hurled into the sea. That's what the song is about, God destroying the Egyptians. In verse 1, it talks about God hurling the Egyptians. Verse 3 to 6, it talks about hurling and drowning. Verse 7, it talks about God having burned, burning with anger. Verse 14 to 16, it talks about the nations being gripped with fear. We don't sing songs like this at church, do we? We don't sing, how great is our God, he drowned the Egyptians. Well, we don't sing, see him in the Sinai killing all the Egyptians. Like, we don't sing that, do we? Why is that? We don't sing, shout to the Lord, all the earth let us sing. Out of his furious anger, he killed Pharaoh's army. Why is that? Why don't we sing that? See, I dare say for some of us, what we're saying, because I don't like a God of wrath hands. This is too angry. This is too violent. I do not like it. I want a God of love. I love a God of love, but the God of anger, a God of wrath, I don't want that. And in fact, Exodus 15, in fact, this whole chapter I find pretty disgusting, honestly, because it's all talking about God's wrath and God's anger. I don't want this. I want a God of love. But can I just say to you, if you believe that, if you hold to that, you cannot have a God of love if you never have a God, if you don't have a God who gets angry. You cannot have a God of love unless he gets angry. I want you to imagine for a second, imagine if, if one of my kids was out there and some guy off the street came up and punched one of them in the face. And I said, oh, I'm a person of love. I don't get angry. You would think, wait up, don't you love your child? That you're not going to be angry that they were hurt? You're not going to even be a little bit angry and you go, no, 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 I'm a, I'm a person of love, I don't get angry. You see, that's, that's just sheer stupidity, isn't it? Because when someone gets hurt that you love, you will be angry because 
Your anger is an extension of your love towards them. Your anger is an extension of love towards them. When, when God sees his people for, for, for close to half a millennia being in slavery and mistreated, for him not to go, hey, uh, not to be angry is to not love them. His wrath here is an extension of God's love. And especially if you read the book of Exodus, in chapter 2, what does Pharaoh order? Pharaoh orders that the whole of Egypt get the baby boys that are being born and throw them into the Nile. How does Moses escape? It's because his sister hides him away and finds a way to get him to Pharaoh's daughter. Pharaoh's, uh, sorry, Moses' sister has got a brother named Aaron. And notice who is singing in 15 verse 20. When Miriam, the prophet, Aaron's sister, Miriam is Moses' sister. She is singing this. And she's probably got women around, around her and men around her who remembered what it is like to have their baby brother thrown into the Nile and drown. And finally, it's been decades, finally, finally God brings justice. Finally, God brings justice. See, the reason why so many of us say, I want a God of love, I don't want a God of wrath, is because we have never been in circumstances where we'd have to call on a warrior God. We've never been in that circumstance. There's a guy named Miroslav Volf who came from the former Yugoslavia who saw some really terrible things and here, here's what he says. My thesis that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance will be unpopular to many Christians, especially theologians in the West. To the person who is inclined to dismiss it, I suggest imagining that you are delivering a lecture in a war zone, which is where a paper that underlies this chapter was originally delivered. Among your listeners are people whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. The topic of the lecture, a Christian attitude towards violence. The thesis, we should not re retaliate since God is perfect, non-coercive love. Soon you will discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human non-violence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. In a scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die. And as one watches it die, one will do well to reflect about many other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. He is saying, if you want, if you want to preach non-violence that we don't bring revenge, you can't have a God that, that does nothing 
the, the reason why you believe that, that you know, uh, God loves or God doesn't judge or all that kind of thing is because you live in Australia and because you have had a very, very, very peaceful life. A number of years ago, I was at uh, Capitol Hill Baptist in Washington and there was um, a number of pastors from America and there was me and another Aussie pastor and there was a few from Iran. And uh, during a break, there was a bunch of pastors um, uh, just standing around having a chat. One of, one, of, one of them said, what's your favorite chapter in the Bible, right? That's a kind of nerdy, geeky thing that pastors talk about, right? And, you know, some, some guys talked about Romans 8, you know, all this kind of stuff. I said, oh, it's Luke 15. And we all got to say why we liked it. I, you know, I like God's grace in Luke, Luke 15, the story, all this kind of stuff, right? And then... One of the Iranian pastors said, my favourite chapter in the Bible is Exodus 15. And he said, because God destroys the conqueror. Here is a man who has lost his whole family because they were Christians. And he loves Exodus 15 because God one day will bring justice. Some of you guys have been extremely hurt by people and justice hasn't been done on this world. Can I say one day justice will be done? And on that day, we will all praise God for it. Your justice may not come in this world, but let me tell you, God is a God of justice. It will come in the next. But here's another thing. If you have a look at chapter... Uh, 15 verse 2. It says, The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. Yes, they are praising God for him destroying the Egyptians, but they are praising God for his salvation because the warrior God has brought them salvation. And just as God has saved his people from his enemies back 3,000 odd years ago, God saved you from your greatest enemies. He saved you from Satan, sin and death. Satan is the one that accuses you, who tells you of your sin. God has defeated him on the cross. Sin destroys your relationship with God and hurts you and others. So that you are now free from that. You are now, the blockage between you and God is now done away with. Death. Oh yeah, we will die unless Jesus comes back before that. But Jesus has gone into the ring with death and knocked it out in the first few seconds. Death is no longer scary because one day you'll be raised from the dead and you will see Jesus. Jesus is our warrior God who did not walk to a sea in in Egypt. No, he walked up the hill of Calvary for you. And when he died and he rose again, he died and rose again as the warrior God who defeats your greatest enemies, Satan, sin and death. God's victory over the Egyptians meant that his people were free. Jesus' victory over his and our enemies means we have freedom. 
that we have hope. All glory be to our Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you are the warrior God who is there for us. Thank you that you are all-powerful. Lord, Lord, I pray for those of us in, our, in this room who are waiting for justice to be done because justice hasn't been done or it won't be done on this, in this world. Thank you that you are a God of justice who one day will bring justice. Lord, we look forward to that day for praising you for your justice. Lord, we thank you that, that you have given us the model of Moses, a man who saw you, even though the Egyptians were coming. Lord, help us to have a faith like his in the midst of our trials and troubles and pain. But Lord, we thank you that just as you defeated the Israelites' enemy, that you defeated ours. Thank you that you have conquered Satan, sin and death. And we stand victorious because of what you've done. And so, Lord, may our lives reflect that. May we always live in response to the victory that Jesus has won. Amen.